Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. I have our scripture reading for today. Uh, It comes from Ruth 3, 1 through 11. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he has been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young woman. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and found the instructions and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this room, and I thank you for your presence in it. Um, I pray that uh, you would wake us up to that presence. And that as we interact with you and intersect with you, I pray that that would, um, I don't know, that it would stir something inside us, that you would uh, remind us today why you made us and, and um, what you made us for. And so I just thank you. I thank you that uh, you love us, that you're with us, that you're for us, that you have not given up on us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, hi, how are you? Good? Happy spring break, church. Um, it's over, though, now. Is it over for everybody? Yeah, sorry. Oh, tomorrow. My kids don't go to school tomorrow? Oh, guys. Let's pray again. <laughs> you pray for me, though, in this, in this, in this turn. Um, holy smokes. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> I am um, Lindsay. I'm the pastor here. If we haven't met, <laughs> welcome. I'm in a spiral currently, but um, <laughs> well, uh, well, let's just preach. So uh, today is the third Sunday of Lent. Um, it is our third week together in the book of Ruth, and I'm having so much fun in the book of Ruth. I hope you're having fun. I don't know that Lent is supposed to be this fun, um, but it has been for me. Um, 
If you haven't yet, I would encourage you to, um, I've been encouraging us every week uh, to take some time between uh, now and Easter and read all four chapters of Ruth in one uh, sitting. It'll take you about... 20 minutes. I think I've said 15 to 30, depending on um, how fast you read. It doesn't take a super long time. Um, and so while we're going like week by week and chapter by chapter in this room, I think the best way really to experience Ruth uh, is all in one sitting. Some things just work best uh, when you see them all at one time and all uh, together. Um, I've told this story a couple of times, uh, but as my dad says, it's a good story, so don't stop me. Um, but <laughs> when I was in high school, I I went on a college visit to the University of Auburn, and um, I remember staring, sorry if you've heard this a million times, but I remember staring at the windows of their student center, or UC, or whatever it was, and, and there they had letters painted on the front of all of the, it was doors, but they were like window doors, you know, and, um, and I was standing there, and I was trying to read it, and I was reading it, and I was like, uh, homecoming, homecoming, have you ever played Mad Lib, or Mad Lib, is that the name, name of the uh, Mad Gab, the name of the game, where you just have these syllables, and I'm just trying to read it, and I'm like, what does that say, homicami? Hum. And I don't think I realized I was saying it out loud until a guy, a college boy, yelled at me, it's homecoming, you idiot. Actually, he didn't say idiot. He said something way worse than that. But, um, <laughs> but I was like, oh, yeah, homecoming. Okay, that makes more sense. Uh, some things just work better when you see them all at one time and all together in one group. And I think that Ruth is a little bit like that. It, it makes uh, its best sense when it's read um, as a story. And so my hope is that you'll do that or you have done that um, or maybe you're doing it each week. Um, and then my hope is also that as you read, you will uncover what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks um, in that the story of Ruth is a story of hesed. Uh, if you're just jumping in uh, with us this week, we've been using this Hebrew word hesed uh, that shows up a couple of times in Ruth, but it shows up like over 240 times in the Old Testament, really in the Bible, uh, in all the, with the Greek versions and everything, it's like almost 500 times. It's a really big, important word in the scriptures and and it's also a word that's really hard to define in English. Uh, oftentimes it gets translated loving kindness. That's why we've called this series what we've called it. Um, and while that's a good translation, it still falls a little bit uh, short. And so each week we've been trying to unpeel some layers and trying to define this word. We've, we've talked about hesed. We talked about this last week. That it's not, um, it's not something so much that you feel, but hesed is this like, active thing. It's the action of loving kindness and mercy that's all covered under the umbrella of loyalty and commitment. Uh, hesed is what the world was uh, created by, and it is what the world was created for. It's a need-meeting kind of love. It's given freely and without obligation. Uh, the cornerstone of hesed love is extravagant generosity. That's what we'll see today. Um, in the Bible, hesed, it's an unearned mercy and kindness and favor. Uh, not because the one receiving it has anything to offer, but it's based entirely on the faithfulness of the one who offers it. And so today I want to just jump right into the story that we heard that Aaron read to us from Ruth 3 and, and uh, break it down for a little while uh, within the lens of Hesed love. 
Uh, and then maybe talk about, or we will talk about what maybe it has for us as people of Jesus today, uh, thousands of years after it was written. So um, a quick catch up before we jump in today. The book of Ruth begins with a woman named Naomi who has fled um, her homeland uh, to a place called Moab because there, has been, there was a famine in her hometown of Bethlehem. And so she and her husband Elimelech, they flee to Moab. When they get there, her husband dies. Um, um, but she has two sons who get married, then both of her sons die. And so we've talked, uh, we talked a lot last week about Naomi and about how these deaths have left Naomi essentially as good as dead because widows had such little value uh, in her time. And so uh, Naomi, she decides to return to Bethlehem and um, in hopes of finding some sort of hope there. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, in this great act of hesed that we talked about the first week, she vows her loyalty and her love to Naomi, and she returns back with her. Uh, and then last week we left Ruth. Uh, she was in the fields of a man named Boaz uh, who had, uh, with great kindness and generosity and protection, given Ruth his favor uh, in his fields. He, he gave her a chance to have more than enough grain. He gave her a warm meal. He uh, provided for her ex this like extravagant generosity. And so that's kind of where we left off. So today, based on um, the time that it takes to process grain from a harvest to a threshing floor, uh, our story today picks up about seven weeks from where we left Ruth last uh, week. So almost two months. Um, and for Boaz and his crew, uh, this is, uh, uh, it's been a good and fruitful season. Um, and so they're celebrating. If you uh, remember back to chapter one, um, I think it's really fair to assume that Boaz had lived through the same famine uh, that sent Naomi and her family out of Bethlehem and into Moab. And so in my imagination, uh, Boaz can still feel the thrill of fruitfulness after living through the depths of famine. And so they're celebrating. And so it's within this scene of celebration that Naomi starts to create uh, a plan for her daughter-in-law. And if you were with us last week, I think we see a different Naomi here than we've seen uh, so far in the story. I think that uh, Ruth's love and loyalty to Naomi and, and the hesed of Boaz shown to uh, the two of them has sort of started to thaw Naomi out. Have you had those experiences in your life where the, the cold and hardness uh, starts to soften because of someone's kindness to you? I think that's where we see Naomi. She's kind of thawing out, and I think she is uh, waking up to the presence and the power of loving kindness in her life in a way that makes her want to give it uh, away. And so where we've seen her for the last couple of weeks as uh, resigned, um, this week we see that Hesed has woken her up to imagining a new kind of future again. Um, and so she creates this plan of protection and providence for Ruth. Um, Historically, at this time, marriages were negotiated exclusively by men, by fathers or brothers on behalf of a woman. But Ruth uh, has no one to advocate for her. Uh, she, her husband has died. Uh, her father, uh, if he's alive, is in another land. She has no one to advocate for her. She has no bargaining power, no dowry, no uh, connections. She's an immigrant widow who has not been able to bear a child, and that's not a really great place to bargain from uh, at this time. 
Um, I think sometimes in our experience, uh, thousands of years later, we think of marriage mostly as driven by dating or romance or butterflies. And so I think that we or I uh, tend to put that lens on the story of Ruth. But in Ruth's time of living, marriage was more strategic than romantic. Uh, Marriage, it was for lineage, it was for land, it was for social or economic or political power or benefit. And so Naomi, uh, knowing the challenge ahead of her and knowing the challenge ahead of Ruth, begins to strategically and creatively advocate for Ruth. She imagines and creates a plan uh, that would turn the system in their favor in a way that would give Ruth protection and providence of a woman uh, with a husband. And the plan is simple but risky. Uh, Naomi will send uh, a bathed and beautifully clothed Ruth, an unwed woman, into the night and to the threshing floor uh, to meet Boaz. And Naomi, she's, she's chosen Boaz uh, for his kindness and for his connection uh, to their family. At the end of chapter 2, uh, Naomi calls Boaz a family redeemer. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, we actually find out, if, we'd give Aaron, if I had had Aaron keep reading for the rest of chapter 3, we actually find out that there is a closer relative uh, who would be in line to help Ruth and Naomi. But uh, Naomi doesn't go there. Naomi picks Boaz because uh, he knows Ruth. And he has been so kind and so generous to Ruth. And so I think that Naomi is like placing her bets on loving kindness, the loving kindness of Boaz. So Naomi, she tells Ruth to, to take a bath and to put on perfume, and to get dressed in her best clothes. Uh, Frederick Bush, who is a theologian, he was an Old Testament professor at Fuller Seminary, he says that Ruth's clothing here is a symbol of her removing the garments of widowhood and putting on the garments of availability. In my mind, this was the Old Testament equivalent of changing your Facebook status from in a relationship to single. Frederick Bush, Old Testament theologian, is rolling in his grave there. I just said that. Um, But in Naomi's plan to get uh, Ruth ready, Ruth is not necessarily dressing up for a date. That's how how I read it at first. Um, But theologians say it's much bigger than that. She's not dressing up to go out on a date. She is um, putting on wedding clothes. Ruth is getting ready uh, for a wedding. And then uh, Naomi gives Ruth the plan. She says, when the celebrations start winding down for the night, watch where Boaz goes to sleep and then sneak in after he's asleep and uncover his feet and lay down at them and then wait for him to make the next move. That's the plan. Again, it's simple uh, but risky, but Ruth agrees to it. Ruth, uh, throughout the entire book, if you, if you read all four chapters, Ruth um, has really one singular focus the entire time, and that is a vow of love and loyalty that she made to Naomi. Um, sometimes this story is told in a way uh, that makes Boaz seem like Ruth's main focus, but I don't really see that. Ruth never sways or wavers from her promise to her mother-in-law, her promise to Naomi. She is laser-focused in her commitment. And so Ruth gives Naomi the plan, or Naomi gives Ruth the plan, and Ruth says, I will do everything that you say. And she does. Ruth, she goes to the threshing floor, and she uh, watched to see where Boaz uh, would go to sleep. And after he falls asleep, uh, Ruth sneaks quietly over, and she does exactly what Naomi told her to do. And she uncovers his feet, and and she lays down uh, by them. And then around midnight, the Bible tells us, Boaz wakes up startled. I don't know if you've ever woken up to a woman at your feet. I don't know what your life is like. But, like, surprise! (laughs) Like, that just is hilarious to me. Also, I've been wondering all week if this is where the term cold 
cold feet came from. I don't know. You can Google that. Maybe wait till the end of the service. But, okay. Um, Anyway, uh, Boaz, he, he wakes up. He wakes up to find Ruth uh, laying at his feet. And according to Naomi's plan, Ruth is to wait for Boaz to make a move. But this, I love this moment. In this moment, Ruth, in this moment of like empowerment, Ruth goes off script. She's done everything that Naomi told her to do up until this point. And even when she left, she told Naomi, I will do everything that you say. So she didn't lie to Naomi, but Ruth obviously has a plan of her own. I think I'm projecting on Ruth a little bit because um, my part-time job as a teenager was finding ways not to lie to my parents, but also not to tell the whole truth. And so that could be me projecting here on Ruth, but... um, but Ruth, she takes, uh, she takes Naomi's instructions and she takes them one step further. After she tells Boaz, who, he says, who are you? And she tells him who she is and then she says something brilliant. She says, spread the corner of your covering over me. She doesn't wait for him like she was supposed to. She says, spread the corner of your covering over me for you are my family redeemer. And this is the moment I want to spend our time on uh, today. Because I think it is a really, really important and often very misunderstood moment. Uh, Culture and preachers have uh, turned this moment into a moment about romance. Someone asked me this week uh, if I was going to talk about the R-rated part of the story. And that's a fair question about this, this moment. It's not wrong. This is one of the most intimate and vulnerable moments we have in all of the scriptures. Uh, it's, it's full of big questions and it's wrought with tension. There's emotional tension and cultural tension and honestly sexual tension in it. As awkward as it may be to say, when, when Ruth lifts the corner of Boaz's covering, I think we are meant to take that as some sexual tension. Uh, because most theologians agree that, that this action, with Ruth's clothing and this action, um, these statements are uh, from Ruth, a, a marriage proposal. Ruth is inviting Boaz into marriage. To still a phrase from Matt Chandler, she's inviting Boaz into the mingling of their souls. And in Hebrew law, uh, at this time, in a situation like this, a valid marriage did not require a ceremony and it didn't require a contract. The only requirement uh, to make a marriage valid in this type of situation was to consummate the marriage. And I think that that's Naomi's plan for Ruth. That's what Ruth would offer uh, to Boaz when she uncovered his feet. But when Boaz wakes up, Ruth uh, puts words on her action. She takes a system um, that I think was meant to hold her down, a system that was uh, in a lot of ways demeaning to women, and, and she spins it in this brilliant, brilliant move. She, she uncovers his feet, but she says, it doesn't stop there. Uh, cover me as you would a family redeemer. That's what she says to him. And here's what she's asking. Uh, to any Israelite, uh, the two most important things would be land and lineage. Land and lineage. Those are the two most important things to any Israelite at this time. And so a series of laws were created by God for his people in order to protect those things. Uh, The first uh, law that I want to talk about was called the Leveret Law. Uh, You can find it in Deuteronomy 25 if you want to do a little research. And and basically what it said is, if a man died without an heir, then under law his brother-in-law was required to marry and then bear heirs with his widow. 
This was a law that would uh, protect the lineage of a family line. And then there was a second law. Um, It's called the Kinsman Redeemer Law. You can find it in Leviticus 25. Um, And it was a law to to protect land. And so this one applied to a little bit of a wider pool of relatives than just uh, the brother of a man who died. Um, And so here's how it worked. If a man was going to lose his land for any reason, death or he gambled it away or lost it or debt or whatever, for any reason, his nearest relative would be asked to buy the land before it was lost or buy it back from whoever the man lost it to. Um, And then that relative would buy the land and give it back to his relative uh, that lost it. And this kept the land from being owned outside of a family or owned outside of a tribe. Both of these laws, they required a great amount of sacrifice. I don't know how you would feel about marrying your sister-in-law. Don't answer that question out loud. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) for some of you, you're like, that would be a sacrifice. They both cost a man some power, and they both cost a man some um, privilege. With the Leverett Law, a man who married his brother's widow would essentially take the pie of uh, his estate or his inheritance, and um, rather than getting his brother's half when he died, the man would um, have his half, his his newborn heir, so a newborn baby, would take um, his brother's half, and then he would have to share his own half with him. I just explained that really weird, but does it kind of make sense? It took a pie, and it divided it into much smaller uh, slices. And then uh, with the kinsman redeemer law, it doesn't necessarily take a pie and divide it into smaller slices. It just take a, takes a man's pie and makes it smaller because it would cost a man his estate or cost him part of his inheritance in order to buy land back for someone else. And that wasn't land he got to keep. It was land he had to give back as a gift. And so becoming your brother's rel- or your relative's keeper came at great cost. It was essentially a law of losing proposition. <laughs> but the spirit of God's laws for his people, they are, are not really laws about winning. Instead, uh, they are the Hesed way of doing things. These laws, they existed to protect and empower the vulnerable at the risk of your own privilege. And one of the things that makes this moment between Ruth and Boaz so vulnerable and so powerful is that Ruth, in her proposal, asks Boaz uh, to follow both laws. She combines the two, the Leverett Law and the Kinsman Redeemer Law. She blends them together. Essentially, what Ruth is asking Boaz is for a blended double portion of loving kindness. A blended double portion of hesed. It is the first time we see this uh, in the scriptures. It's never been done before according to uh, history or the written history that we have. It is so distinct of a request that there are tons of theologians that think Ruth just like made a mistake. That she was a foreigner who was trying to learn Jewish law and got her laws confused. And so she asked for two things when she didn't understand that they were two different things. And maybe that's true. But from the first time we met her, Ruth has been brave and she has been creative and she has walked with an incredible amount of wisdom. And I think she knew what she was asking. I really think she knew what she was asking. But still, her request to this man is culturally absurd. It is absurd. Again, she is a foreign widow who to all evidence is barren. 
And she's asking for a double portion. It's a request of great financial risk to Boaz and, and social risk to Boaz. It's a risk to his power, to his position. It's a risk to his own family line. It's a request that puts him in a place of really big vulnerability. Uh, Ruth, she is taking a chance with Boaz. She's going against culture in hopes that his said will win out. Her proposition is vulnerable. It is emotionally and socially and sexually vulnerable. And still, with great courage, she asks in a very big way. I think as Ruth has learned more about the God of Israel, it seems to have taken, what seems to have taken in her is an understanding that the spirit of God's law is hesed. And that that spirit empowers her to have the imagination and creativity to weave together two laws in a brand new way that no one has ever done before. So she puts it out there, and then Boaz answers. Uh, last week, I quoted a woman named Carolyn Custis James, uh, who's a theologian who wrote a book called The Book of Ruth, or sorry, The Gospel of Ruth, uh, which is so, so good if you're looking for a resource. I told you last week was a book report on this book, so is this week. Um, it's so good, but she says this. She says, the gospel takes us, I think I have a slide for this, Colin. The gospel takes us to a completely different realm of human relations. The gospel takes us to a completely different realm of human relations. And we certainly see that as Boaz responds to Ruth's request. He doesn't shame her, he doesn't embarrass her. He doesn't use her or take advantage of her. Ruth, uh, uh, the story of Ruth, it is so much bigger than uh, a lot of times it's treated as a story about dating or a story about marriage. I think it's so much bigger than that. It is certainly a story about love, but it's not just a love story. Uh, but if you want to take a dating tip from the book of Ruth, I think this is a good place to take one. That when it comes to dating, when it comes to the proposal of marriage, uh, humans are not ours to shame and they are not ours to take advantage of. They are ours to care for and empower. That was for free. Dating tip. Um, one of the astounding things about uh, these two people, about Ruth and Boaz, is that we see throughout their entire story that they are committed uh, to hesed love. Love that protects, love that dignifies and empowers uh, those in vulnerable places. And Boaz's response just reinforces this idea he doesn't shame her. Again, he doesn't shame her. He doesn't um, take advantage of her. He doesn't use her. Instead, Boaz praises her. He praises Ruth for her courage and her creative risk. And then he prays for her and he blesses her and he calls her a woman of noble character. Uh, that phrase uh, of uh, noble character is actually uh, the same phrase that we, was used to describe him in the chapter before. Uh, it's uh, heel, or it, what he's using in this phrase in Hebrew is eshet sheel. And um, essentially what it means is um, like noble character isn't big enough. It's a, better, a better translation would be that he's calling her a woman of valor. It is a battle word. It means mighty and faithful. And Ruth is the only woman who holds this title in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Essentially what Boaz does when he praises her is he takes this uh, Hael hat off of himself and he says, no, you need this. This is you and everyone knows it. Our whole town sees that you are a warrior of great strength and great courage. You are a woman of valor. Boaz uh, recognizes a spirit of courage and power in Ruth 
that is calling him into deeper levels of faith and hesed. Uh, what Boaz sees, in, Boaz sees in Ruth in this moment is what I think that we're supposed to see thousands of years later uh, as well. Boaz sees that her risk embodies something of God, that her creativity and her imagination and her courage, that they embody something of God. And when he sees that, he, he puts her on display, uh, Boaz and Naomi, they do some heroic things in this story, but Ruth, she's the crown jewel of the story. And Ruth, as incredible as she is, she, she still points to something beyond herself. Her courage, her valor, her creativity, her kindness, her work ethic, her said, all of these things are admirable, but all of them point to the truest hero of the story, the God who put all of those things in her. All of the stories of the scripture, and including this vulnerable and intimate moment between Ruth and Boaz, all of them are stories that point beyond themselves. All of them are revelations of God, clues uh, about who he is and what he's doing in the world. Uh, revelations about how great and wide and long his mercy is and his loving kindness is. Uh, mercy and generosity and loving kindness that, uh, like in this moment, empowers women in a system of patriarchy that sought to strip them of their dignity. But God's has said, pours dignity back into them. Uh, he has a mercy and a generosity and a loving kindness that never gives up on his people, but instead, uh, ultimately, uh, it, it, he sends his own son, not just to bring Hesed, the Hesed to the Father into the world, but he sends Jesus to become it, to become his loving kindness, to embody his loving kindness in a way that would seal its power in the world forever. The stories of the scriptures, they all point outside of themselves to the loving kindness of God. And then they do this crazy thing. It's like they point out to God uh, and his love, and then when that happens, then they like point back to us. One of the first Bible verses that I ever memorized was in something called Bible Drill. Did anyone else grow up Baptist? Okay. Um, <laughs> Bible Drill, it was Genesis 1:27. God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God, he created and empowered men and women equally in his own image, uh, both with something of him in us. And then the verse right after that one in Genesis, uh, God uh, gives humans a job to do. The verse right after this, he gives all of humanity, uh, he, he says all of our purpose. Uh, the way we say it around here is that God created us on purpose for purpose. And what we see in the story of Ruth and in story after story after story in the scriptures and the sermons of Jesus and the letters of Paul and all of them is that God intends to change the world through men and women who are made in his image and who are committed to hesed love, who are committed to this kind of loving kindness. This has always been his plan for the world. That hesed would lead to hesed, that his image bearers would find the imagination and the creativity and the courage to join him in the renewal of all things as, as he puts things back into order through the work of loving kindness. In creation, God has put something of himself into us. Uh, we see it in Ruth. We see it in Boaz. 
we see it coming back to life again in Naomi. He has instilled in them and he has instilled in us his identity as his image bearers, uh, loved by him with a loyalty that will never, ever, ever, ever stop. And he has instilled in us purpose to create and cultivate using our own skills and our own minds and our earthly bodies to bring more of the things of heaven into this world. We are his plan for the world and there isn't a plan B. It's a terrible idea. And as a person of Jesus, when we look at the world and and all of the disorder that we find in it, we aren't supposed to wonder if someone is going to do something about it. I think instead we're supposed to ask a different question, a question that Ruth asked. Uh, What am I going to do about it? Because it's us. We're the plan. I heard someone say this week that one of the least Christian things we could ever say is, I guess that's just the way it is. I don't see any evidence anywhere in the scriptures where we are supposed to live our lives with that kind of resignation. Anywhere. What if Ruth had done that? Naomi tried to do that, but Ruth wouldn't let her. As followers of Jesus, our view of the world is not supposed to be one of resignation. Our view of the world is supposed to be imagination. Not resignation, but imagination. Because we believe in something bigger than ourselves. Because we believe in a kingdom that is breaking into this world and offering it something better and fuller, something more alive. And so we as children of God are meant to follow in the example of Boaz and use the things that God has put in us, not as a weapon against the weak or as a stepping stool over the vulnerable places and people of this world to get to a better place of power for ourselves. Uh, we as children of God are, are, are meant for empowerment. We're meant to bring dignity and order and renewal and restoration into this world. To help God, this is what we, we used to say to our kids. We would say, why were you made? And their answer was um, to enjoy God and help him put the world back together. That's why we think we're made. I think our purpose in, for existing is twofold. To enter into the hesed of God and then to take that where, with us wherever we go. To experience a mercy that will not quit no matter what. And then to take that love and take that mercy and fill the world with it. Uh, in his book, sorry, that's not how it looks in the world a lot. When you look at the view of Christianity all over our country, that, that isn't how it looks a lot. And I think that sometimes that maybe shifts our brain or shifts our thinking into resignation because Christians look kind of not like this. But our purpose, I think, is the same. It is to enter into the Hesed of God and to take it with us wherever we go. Okay, here's my quote. Um, Colin, I have a slide for this one. Um, in his book, uh, Inexpressible, that we've used as a resource uh, uh, during the series, uh, Michael Card says this. He says, in the end, it's not just about some ancient word. It is about the world of Hesed. It is about entering into that world with an informed imagination and allowing that world to enter and transform us as we develop an instinct to do kindness. Has said it's not just about a word, but about a world, about the world. And learning how to uh, uh, enter into Hesed and allow it to enter into us uh, and transform us and then develop in us the instincts of courage and the instincts of mercy and the instincts of generosity and the instincts of loving kindness. 
the instincts of creativity and imagination for order and hope and healing wherever we are. We aren't just meant to talk about the loving kindness of Jesus. We're meant to fill the world with it. We aren't meant to live lives of like, well, that's just the way it is. We're meant to look at the world and its places of disorder and chaos and disunity and ask ourselves, how can I fill this moment uh, or this action or this puzzle or this struggle uh, with loving kindness? How can I, in the moments of my own life, fill the earth with more of the things of heaven? I was thinking about this week when I was thinking about this. Do you remember WWJD bracelets? Does anyone still have one? Okay, my, I remember my youth pastor giving them to us, and he was like, um, look at these before you make decisions. And he was like, you know, if you're going to go to a party where there's drinking and drugs, or if you're going to be alone on the couch with your boyfriend or girlfriend, those were the only two examples for anything ever, um, then look at your bracelet, you know. And that's a great idea. But then, I, then he did add another example. He was like, if you're in line at the cafeteria and you're trying to decide between chicken patty and corn dog, what would Jesus do? And I was like, this is absurd. This, I, Jesus did not have corn dogs, so I don't know what he would do. Um, but I was thinking about this bracelet and the idea behind them, like for, for what can be kind of crazy about them, the heart of them was right, is that it's the idea that we would enter into the world and ask the question. I, I think maybe the question is, uh, or I would like to expand the question, the idea that we would enter into the world and ask the question, how do I fill this place with more of the good things of heaven? Me. How do I, Lindsay, fill this with more of the good things of heaven? How do I, Kareem, how do I, Tim, how do I, Brad, fill this world with the good things of heaven? I I think that's the right heart. We aren't, again, meant just to talk about the loving kindness of Jesus. We're meant to fill the world with it. And the more I think we learn to ask the question, how do I do that, the more I think we will develop an instinct in learning how to do it. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend some time on that question, and I want to bless that in you. Um, uh, We do this every week at the vineyard. We just take a moment of quiet. We call it Selah and just a moment to process. And you can pray, or there'll be verse on the screen, or you can just sit quietly. That's also a gift. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about our identity and purpose as God's people, for some of us it feels like we're being seen for the very first time. But I think for a lot of us, it feels really overwhelming. Like uh, we hear that we're made on purpose for a purpose and we're supposed to help put the world back together. And then we're immediately like, am I supposed to stop the war in Ukraine? Like, is this on me? And maybe, it really might be on you. Um, But I think the best way to think about this is to think, where is God inviting you to practice his love and kindness? Where is God inviting you to practice his said, to bring more of the things uh, of heaven into the earth in your square mile of concrete? That's what Eugene Peterson calls it. Where in your little world that you live in, where is God asking you to bring more order into chaos? Uh, In chapter 2 of of Ruth, Boaz uh, prays for Ruth two times in chapter 2 and 3. In chapter 2, he prays for her and he prays that God uh, would uh, cover her. He uses this language that God would like cover her and protect her. Uh, And it's the same language that Ruth uses uh, in chapter 3 to ask Boaz to cover her and protect her. And it struck me this week that sometimes we become the answers to our own prayers, right? How sometimes we can be praying and asking God, like, I want you to move here uh, for blessing here, provision here, for breakthrough here. And he's like, sure, I will absolutely do that. You go. Like, I'll do it in you. Or I'll do it through you. And so that's just the thought, again, for free. So I just want to pray, and we'll just spend some time in quiet here.